One of the things about um, humanity from the beginning of time when there was expectation, somehow in the minds of men and women, they started writing storylines. And in the storylines, right from the get-go, there was always the hero and the villain. Or there was good versus evil. Right? We see it all the time. And, and whatever it was, whatever it looked like, there was always some good guy over here fighting some bad guy over here. And there was this, this war going on. And so we're always cheering for the good guy, the hero, to come along and save the day. And the villain gets defeated and thrown into jail or uh, demolished or crushed or whatever it is, burned up, gone. The problem is, is that what we experience maybe in the storyline is actually part of truth, real life. Right now, we have all kinds of villains on this planet. We have the little rocket man over in North Korea ready to push a button. And then we have ISIS and the Taliban. We have terrorists all over the world. Um, it all depends on your take on life. Some people think that our president is the villain and that somebody else might be the hero. And so we've got this narrative that's playing out in real life on the world stage. But what we like are the movies. Star Wars. Right? Coming out. That's, a, that's the, de, the depiction of good versus evil, of David versus Goliath. And we know that the, the hero is going to win and the villain is going to lose. Then one of my favorites is Lord of the Rings trilogy because that is awesome. I love going to Middle Earth. Spend some time there. Then you have the Avengers or Iron Man. We have all of these people, all these different uh, movies that we have, that we have these heroes and these villains. And I think why, one of the reasons why we go and we watch them and we enjoy them so much is because we kind of depict our life like that. Because we're either looking in real life for someone to come along and be our hero and save us from whatever's going on in humanity. Or... What we like to think is that we're the victims and there's a hero out there and because we've seen enough of the movies, all of a sudden we get the inkling that I'm going to be the hero and I'm going to save the day because all the rest of the people are victims. We see it happening in the church. People come in and and they say, you people are all victims and I'm going to be the hero. But the problem is, is that sometimes the person that, that maybe has already been a victim, they want to play the role of the hero, but in reality, what they really are is their own villain to their own soul. 
And so we're often wearing three different hats in our lives. And sometimes it's all in the same day. Some days we wake up and we feel like we've been victimized by the world. And so we put on our hero hat we're going to save the day. But in the process of trying to save the day, we become the villain and we mess everything up. And people are angry and mad at us because we just didn't quite meet the expectations of being a hero. And, and so the truth of all of this stuff is that we've already got the hero. He's already made his entrance into this world. He did it 2,000 years ago. That's kind of what we're celebrating. Our hero came in the most ridiculous way. He came as a baby into a manger, not even in a house, but more like a barn or a cave. He wasn't born to the greatest family on the planet. He wasn't born into wealth. He was born into poverty. He was born in, into a place where he actually, b- before he was even five years old, had to run for his life because he was already the victim of this world. And our unlikely hero, when he came to this earth, the weapon he used to defeat the enemy was one of the most obstacles it's just one of the craziest weapons you could ever think of. The weapon that he used was the weapon of love. And our, our hero, we call him King Jesus. And, the, and his storyline doesn't fit the narrative of most storylines because the way that he saved the human race was by dying. It's not the best result for a good storyline. But he didn't just die. He was raised from the dead and is now seated at the right hand of God in majesty. And and the greatest part is one day he will come and take all who belong to him and to his kingdom with him and all of human suffering will come to an end. There will be no more cancer. There will be no more blindness. There will be no more haircuts. You will all be bald just like me. Perfect head. You are, you are all going to experience with King Jesus what it's like to have a, a true hero who will rule with truth and justice. And that's what he's going to do for us. But in the meantime, we are fighting a real battle, and it's about life and death on the eternal stage. So the question really really comes to what are the weapons that we're going to use in this battle, this epic battle for the human soul? Well, the good news is we don't have to guess what it is. The Apostle Paul told us in 2 Corinthians what that looked like. And so here's what he said. For though we walk in the flesh... We are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion that raised against the knowledge of God. And then we take every thought captive to obey Jesus, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Do you see what God has given us? He's given us the ability to 
to destroy strongholds and arguments and lofty opinions that raise themselves against the knowledge of who God is. He's given us the ability to take our thoughts that are destructive to our soul and take them captive and make them obedient to Jesus. He's given us the power to do that through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And the greatest news is that there is so much more to this power than what either any of us have ever tapped into. God has released into us, through His Holy Spirit, divine power. What does that look like, though? What is that? How do, how do I tap into that divine power through the Holy Spirit? I mean, what is it? It's, it's, an, it's unlike anything we have ever thought or heard of. It's not only the power of Jesus in our lives. It's the provision from God through the Holy Spirit to bring others to the place where they know Jesus and for us who already know Jesus to walk in truth and grace. And that tool, that weapon, or that godly provision is called love. Some of you are going like, what? Oh, come on. What happened to the force, the Jedi power, the mind control? Because if I were God, that's what I would do. I'd give the ability to yeah, These are not the Christ followers you're looking for. <laughs> well, you know what? Uh, God probably has a better idea on what it is that we should be doing. And listen, I'm not making this stuff up. This is what comes out of the Bible. This is what John says by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And it's what Jesus said. So as we continue through our study in John's letter to the church, let's look at chapter 3 and verse 11, because that's where we're going to start today. For this reason, or for this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Last week, the message that John brought to the church in in the segment we were looking at, is he basically said, if you're a child of God, live like a child of God. You guys are going like, why didn't you just say it like that last week and we could have been done with it like an hour earlier? Well, because there's a lot more to it. Because it's not enough to believe rightly, you must also behave rightly. Being precedes doing. But all acts of righteous activity must be based on being. That is, on who we are in Christ. Jesus has given us a call to love, but it isn't like the kind of love that we're used to, the kind of love that we've experienced with our friends and with our family. Because what happens in the natural term of how we express love and how we engage in love with other people is we have someone who will express their love to us And what we do is in return to reciprocate to them our love, we do something of what we would consider to be equal value or maybe just a little smidge better than what they did. We kind of have this idea of trying to outdo each other when it comes to to the way we express love, but the way we express love, I don't think is really the way that God intended for us to, to express love. The, the, 
the love that we know and the love that we naturally express to each other is the, is the love that we've been exposed to by our family and our friends. And that love is the way that the world operates in love. And that's all they know and that's all they believe and that's all they can do. When someone does something for us, we want to return it to them. But the love that John is speaking about is found only in relationship with Jesus and by the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Remember what Jesus said to his disciples just before he went to the cross? In John chapter 13, he said this, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. I mean, Jesus is really coming, and he's, he's hitting this up in, in as strong words as he can do because he's talking to the disciples about a new commandment of love that he's giving to the disciples. Now, you, you would have to really be going like, was that really a new commandment? You mean their entire life, the disciples going to the synagogue school when they were little all the way through till they became adults and listening to the teaching in the synagogue and learning about God, they never heard... That, that the command to love was there? No, they heard it all the time. But what they didn't hear was what that love looked like. What did that love mean to them? It, it's totally different than something else that we would really understand. It's unlike the normal run-of-the-mill kind of love. It's an elevated love above what we can do in the flesh. The love that Jesus is calling us to is far beyond anything that we can manufacture on our own. And the way we know that is because of the way that Jesus described what this love looks like other than what they normally knew. And that we find in Matthew chapter 5. Where Jesus said, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That was the norm. But, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Huh. That is divine love. There is no way anybody on this planet is going to love their enemy and pray for the people that make their life miserable. You can't do it in the flesh. It only comes by the power of the Holy Spirit at work in your life to be able to produce the kind of thing that God's wanting to produce in your life. And so what happens is is that we have people who are far from God, who might be your neighbors, might be your friends, they might be even familiar with the Bible, and they hear that you're supposed to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, and they think it's an impossible task that Jesus has asked us to do, and they say, nobody can do it. It's ridiculous. Why would you want to do it? And then what happens is they watch you do it, and it blows their minds. Because the only way that you can do that is by the power of the Holy Spirit at work in your life. It is by divine power. Remember that? It's the divine power that we defeat these things. We take our thoughts captive. It's God working in us. So let's move on to uh, verse 12, where John says, We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. Why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. All right. So 
why all of a sudden does John throw that verse in the middle? He's talking about love, and he, you know, all of a sudden he flips it, and he starts talking about Cain and Abel and what Cain did to Abel. It's because what John's thinking is, I'm going to give you a biblical example of someone who doesn't understand the divine love of God. And that was Cain. And, and, and there are several important points I want to point out to you. You need to know about the situation of Cain and Abel. Both were brothers with the same parents, Adam and Eve. Both brought sacrifices to God. The problem was that Cain's sacrifice was apparently contrary to God's specific rules for the kind of sacrifice he should have brought. And so when Cain saw that God accepted his brother's sacrifice and rejected his own, he became angry. Now, Cain demonstrated his spiritual and ethical relationship to Satan in that he, he stepped in and acted as he did with evil in his heart. And here's how this applies to us. There are things that God calls us to do And we don't do them or we fall short in doing what God's called us to do. And our response is more kind of like, well, my intentions were really to do the right thing. I meant to be a good person. I just kind of didn't do it. And you know, good intentions really don't do that much for us. I mean, you might have all the good intentions in the world to get your homework to your teacher on time. And they don't care what your intentions are. If it's late, it's late and you're in trouble. You might have all the good intentions in the world to file your taxes on time. And when you don't, big brother comes knocking on your door. You have all the good intentions in the world to buy the anniversary present for your wife that you meant to do and you forgot. And though now she's talking about... um, Never celebrating an anniversary with you ever again. Because you don't celebrate anniversaries when you're dead. (laughs) You, we have these things going on and these good intentions. You know, and sometimes we'll say something half jokingly, but I think there's a little bit of truth we throw into it. We say, well, isn't it the thought that counts? No. The thought doesn't count one little bit. I Stop using that as an excuse. Cops stop saying, well, I had the thought. Well, forget the thought. It's the action behind it that makes the thought count. And so I want you to understand that there are a lot of people who have had good intentions to meet up with God and get their life straight and to do the right thing. And the highway to hell is paved with good intentions. See, here's what we learned from Cain. He saw what his brother brought to God and saw that it was acceptable. God told Cain, your sacrifice is not acceptable. You didn't follow and obey what I asked you to do. Cain had the opportunity right then to turn around and look at his brother Abel and say, 
I am going to pick up and learn from you what it means to provide something to God that is acceptable. But he didn't. He got jealous, and out of jealousy was birthed anger, and out of anger was birthed hatred, and out of hatred was birthed murder. Now, don't you think that, that Abel died just kind of a, he hit him in the head with a rock or, you know, pushed him off a cliff or something like that. It was a vicious, ugly, nasty, blood everywhere, stabbing, cutting, horrible event that took place. But here's the thing about Abel, Abel's sacrifice. It wasn't his sacrifice that made him righteous. It was his attitude and actions in obedience to God before the sacrifice was made. It's what was behind the motive of his sacrifice to God. It was out of a desire to be obedient to God that he was righteous. And therefore, because he was walking in obedience and what he offered to God in the sacrifice, it became a righteous sacrifice. And and that's what God's wants us. See, Cain was going through the motions. He didn't bring what God required. He didn't do what God asked him to do. He didn't walk in obedience with God. He didn't love God or respect God or had any desire to obey God. And all he brought was just an extension of his heart and the extension of his heart was wickedness and evil. What do you bring? What's behind your motivation when you come to God? What, what are you presenting to God that you think is what God wants from you? The psalmist got it. He knew it. Psalms 11, 7 says this, For the Lord is righteous. That's the starting point. We have a righteous God. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. So you see, here's what's going on is is because we have a righteous God and because we walk in newness and obedience and in faith with God, we now are conferred onto us the righteousness and holiness of Jesus because he's the one that makes us righteous and holy. And because we walk in this holiness that Jesus provides to us through his sacrifice on the cross, now we are going to be the ones, like the psalmist says, who will behold his face. An unrighteous person will never see the face of Jesus for real. I mean, they're going to see him one day, but it's not going to be a pleasant thing. We'll get to that in a, in a couple of minutes. So John continues on in verse 13, and he says something that we look at, but I think we walk right by it, and we don't pay attention to what he says. He says in verse 13 of 1 John, Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We read that, we go, yep, okay. And then because you're a, a righteous Christ follower, following Jesus, doing what God's called you to do, there are people around you who hate your guts, and you're surprised by it. Why are you surprised? I mean, it's, it's one of those things where, where we do what God calls us to do. Jesus says, you know, John says right here, 
the world's going to hate you. They're not going to love you because we have the kingdom of God and we've been given the power through the Holy Spirit to live a righteous life. And because we are living righteously, we are on the receiving end of great disdain and even hatred. Listen to what Jesus told his disciples in John chapter 15 just before he goes to the cross. He says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. It, listen, the world hates you because of your relationship with Jesus and what he's done for you. And because you have experienced a transformation in the way that you think, in the way that you behave. And now you experience a different level of hate that is not... Um, founded on your personality. It's not coming because of your skin color or your political association. It has nothing to do with your religious affiliation. It all has to do with your relationship with Jesus. And the fact that because of him, you are now a righteous man and a righteous woman. And the world hates righteousness. Why do you think the Supreme Court right now is, is listening and trying a case about um, a gay couple that's fighting a baker over a cake? I'm trying to use my filter right now. And I just want to say that's just damn ridiculous. That is the stupidest thing ever. I mean, if you want me to make a coffee table for you, I don't have to make one for you because I don't make stuff for other people. I just make it for my wife. And sometimes she's wondering if Jesus is going to come back before some of that stuff gets made. <laughs> but what we've got going on is we've got this thing happening in our world right now that the world absolutely hates who we are. But, but we, we, we walk in this thing and we, we're, we're just blown away because we think that everybody should love us because we're Christians. That's not what Jesus... I mean, if they loved Jesus, do you think he would have died on a cross? I, I really think... Here's, here's kind of my take on all of this. That if... If you're walking in the righteousness of Christ and you rub shoulders with people who are not Christ followers, maybe even some who claim to be Christ followers, and they hate you, I mean they hate you, it's not like they just don't like you, but they hate you and they want to make your life miserable, it's because of the righteousness of Christ in you because there's Christ in you, then you've got to, to say at some point, that's got to be a badge of honor in the kingdom of God. Because we've got to be doing the right thing. John 14 says this. Jesus said this to his disciples as well. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask... Okay, let me back that up. No, I'm going to keep going. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it has neither sees him nor knows him. For you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Here again, 
I want you to catch this. Here again is a conditional command from Jesus. Right at the beginning, he says, if you love me. The, the if makes the statement from Jesus conditional. If we love him and keep his commandments, we'll receive the Holy Spirit who will come and be our helper and impact us with God's truth for our lives. And this is yet another reason why the world hates Christ followers because God has determined to make his spirit known to us and he dwells with us and he dwells in us. That's the big news because we talk about Emmanuel, God with us, and that was the promise that God made back in the Old Testament for the people who were looking for, for Jesus to come, the King, the Son of God to come. They were excited about it because finally God was going to be with us and then Jesus gives a little bit of an extra curve on it and he says, I'm not just going to be with you, I'm going to be in you. And because of that, we walk differently. We talk differently. We see things differently. We listen differently. We respond differently. We love differently. We step into situations differently than people who do not have Christ. And that's what it means to love. So when you get the short end of the stick because you're a Christ follower and and you think Christians are getting um, treated poorly and unfairly in this country, then I think what we should do instead of going out and protesting and marching is we should rejoice in the fact that the world absolutely sees the righteousness in Christ in us and hates us for it. Uh, Let me put it to you this way. If you're not getting that, if you're not receiving some of that, then the question you might want to ask yourself is the righteousness of Christ being revealed in my life. If I'm not receiving a little bit of, you know what, all you Christians are the same, you're nothing but a bunch of hypocrites, conversation, then you should be asking yourself the question, why am I not getting that? Is the righteousness of Christ being evident to those who are around me? Now listen, you don't have to be a jack wagon to get people mad at you. You, 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 just, you don't know. It's righteousness that, that we want them not to like you for. It's not because you're being kind of um, a, a dork about life in general. You don't have to be that way. If you let the righteousness of Christ shine through you, you'll get what God promised you would get. But don't go and make it happen. Okay? I'm trying to figure out where I just went from. Hold on. Don't go anywhere. I'm still here. All right, let's move on to verses uh, 14 and 15. For we know that we have passed out of life, out of death into life, because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Again, this all hinges on the evidence of our love. Not a natural, but a supernatural, divine love that can only come from being connected with Jesus, empowered by the Holy Spirit. It's also promised a promise that Jesus made to his disciples and all who would claim to follow Christ after them. He said to his disciples in John chapter 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but passes 
from death to life. You see, that's, the, that's where we move to when we become Christ followers. Before you're a Christ follower, the thing that you avoid like the plague is death. It's not good to die without Jesus. It's really bad. Things are not good. There's nothing worse for a person than to die without Jesus. But when you have Christ, all of a sudden the tables get changed and now you're moving from death to life. Right now, as a non-Christ follower, they're moving from life to death. And, and it's, it's this mortal body that we are going to be giving up. One day, all of us, unless Jesus comes real soon, we will give up this mortal body. And the moment that we give up this mortal body, we are going to move from death into life. And we will be experiencing life and living it maybe for the first time ever, really understanding what true life is when we see Jesus face to face. Now, <clears throat> it's out of Jesus' love, the love for the Father and then the love for us, love for us that he gave himself up. Jesus said that in John chapter 10, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Now understand this, that when Jesus went to the cross, no one forced Jesus to the cross. It wasn't the soldiers that came and arrested Jesus. They didn't come and take him and drag him away, kicking and screaming. Jesus went on his own authority, on his own accord, to the cross to die because he was being obedient to the Father. And out of his obedience and love for the Father, we are the recipients now of eternal life. That's the love that we have from, the, from what Jesus did for us on the cross. Back to 1 John, verse 16. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay our lives down for our brothers. Okay, so most people consider the law of life to be self-preservation. But Jesus teaches us that the first law of spiritual life is self-sacrifice. You remember last week I told you my wife told me to get out of the way when... Somebody shooting at John out of his truck. I, I can't do that now. I've just read the scripture. I don't care if he's shooting his own truck or not. I need to go out there because I might have to lay my life down for John. I will not lay my life down for a Ram 1500. That, that truck is dead. It's been shot. But what does it mean to lay down my life for my brother? is what John is saying here is that I do it for everybody or is there kind of a thing where you do it more for those who are in the household of faith? So who do you lay your life down? Well, when he says brother, he would be inferring that it is other Christ followers. And so does that mean that you are going to now go out and find somebody who's putting themselves into harm's way and you're going to step in front of the bus for them and get hit by a bus? No, that's not what John's saying. 
what John is saying is that there is a self-sacrifice that we are called to step into. So when it comes right down to it, it if we talk about, you know, loving these people, I make a self-sacrifice for the people that I love. Now, if you're, it starts, I think, in the household of faith and it moves out. Because that's all the indication that there is, is that it's not just for the people in the, in the, in the church. And some people are wondering, so when John says I'm supposed to love these people and give my life up for them, I can get it. But do I have to like them? I mean, you know, I'm called to love. Jesus called me to love my enemies and pray for them, but he never said anything about liking them. And so I'm just wondering, do I need to like everybody? Well, you know, here's, here's the issue that we run into. When it comes right down to it, liking is a matter of personal preference. Loving is a matter of obedience to Christ and his word. Love goes beyond the superficial and moves to the essence of the person. Love sees beyond what it does not like in a person and minimizes it in order to see the person as Christ sees him. Loving people you don't like means treating them as if you did like them. That's the natural or the the nature of expressing Jesus' love to other people because it shows up in acts, it gives, it expresses itself towards others. So, Here's the problem we run into, though. We just say, listen, God doesn't have his head in the clouds. He's a realist. He understands human nature. There are going to be people within this congregation that you are just naturally not going to be pizza buddies with. You are not going to be friends. You're not going to like them. And so don't get... Don't get all upset about it. And by the way, not everybody's going to like you either. I can always tell when people don't like me. They leave the church. And they don't even say goodbye. But we still are supposed to love them, and we're supposed to pray for them, and we're supposed to come alongside them, And we're supposed to love them as Jesus did so that we can learn to maybe even like them a little bit. All right, I'm moving on real quick here. Um, Jesse, let's skip the next John 15. I want to move to John uh, 3.17, 1 John 3.17. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, Yet, closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? This is, I'm going to go over this real simply. When it says closes his heart against him, it's not just like um, they're going over and they're coming to a door and they just kind of pull it closed like this, real, you know, and give it a little tug, and, and it's just kind of a subtle way of closing the door against that person. What John means when he wrote that, the way it really comes out is, is that you slam the door shut, you lock the door, and you take the key, and you flush it down the toilet. I don't know if they had flushing toilets, but in the Greek it translated that way. 
And that's what happens when we step into this and we close our hearts against those people. How does God's love abide them when we slam the door shut in their faces? If anyone sees the world, has the world's goods and sees a brother in need, what are the world's goods? Food, clothing, whatever. It's, it's not some spiritual thing. It's a tangible thing. It seems like to me, here's the, the problem that we have going on. John did something really subtle here. Because remember, just a minute ago, he was talking about Cain and Abel and the wicked, evilness, murderous Cain who killed his brother. And we all go like, that's really bad because it's one of the big sins that we don't want to commit. And yet here John takes this move and it's really subtle, but it's monumental in what he just did. He moved from the obvious action of hate which leads to murder, to, to the sin of inaction. It actually may be the most prevalent sin we face on a daily basis in the church and in our lives, and that is the sin of indifference. John's saying, you don't have to ha- hate. You don't have to hate. You just have to be indifferent about the needs of those around you. It seems that this this sin of indifference has been hanging around the church for some time. Look what James said to the church in James chapter 2. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them things they need for the body, what good is that? Now listen, if the church just did what she was supposed to do, the orphans and the widows would be taken care of. The poor and the needy would be fed and clothed and have a warm place to live. But because of the indifference over the centuries of the church and church people, we now have a country of homeless people who are living in cardboard boxes. We have people who are going to dumpsters and diving for breakfast, lunch, and dinner that somebody else threw out. They're, they're standing on the street corners begging for food or begging for money or begging for something in or other. But because of the sin of indifference, we've created this atmosphere in our land. And so the result of the church not being the hands and feet of Jesus is now we have churches who are social justice churches. Is that a bad thing? No. We need to be involved in social justice. But when social justice becomes your primary focus, Jesus gets off the table or off the throne and is relegated somewhere else and he might be pulled out and put in a manger at Christmas and then hung on a cross at Easter. But Jesus has nothing to do with what's going on. And they have missed the mark because now what they're doing is they're going out and they're demonstrating in groups and against social injustice. And the church has never been called to do that. Our mandate is not to set up the infrastructure of social programs. The church is not called to create functional structures that can handle all the needs of the poor and displaced people. As an in, but as an individual, when we see people who are in need, the Holy Spirit will tap us in the chest and say, Help. And if our receptors are healed 
And if they are open to what the Holy Spirit is saying to us, when we hear the Holy Spirit speak about helping somebody who is in need and we step into it, we are doing what Jesus has called us to do. But when you don't, you've just committed the sin of indifference. And it's horrible. Because of the sin of indifference in the church, we now have a government agency that hands out money and food and clothing to people, but they don't give them a hand up. They give them a hand out. And they've created this whole thing within our society to where people are now feeling that they are entitled to all this stuff that the government should be giving to them. And we've created a whole society of people who live off the income of the government and will never provide for themselves. And God never called them to do that. So what's our job as the church? Well, and I'm going to really close quickly with this. Matthew 25, this is what Jesus said is going to happen. He says, when the Son of Man comes in His glory all, and all the angels with Him, that's the second coming, all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations. No one's left out. Everyone's going to be there. And He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep on His right and the goats on His left. Then the King will say to, the, to those on His right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you a drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them. Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. That is the commendation for those who are righteous and are the hands and feet to the people that Jesus has placed into their lives. I didn't bring up what's going to happen to the goats. Those are the sheep on the right hand. You want to know what a goat is? It's a bad thing. You don't want to be a goat in this next life. You don't want to be separated out by King Jesus. You want to be on his right. You don't want to be on his left. Because you go today, you look up Matthew 25 and start reading with verse 41, and you see his chastisement to those who are goats who were not his hands and feet. It's not good. That's why 1 John 3.18 is so important. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Our view of, if our view of God is skewed, our actions will also be skewed. Let me finish with this verse or verses. In Ephesians, it says, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. It's our intentional 
genuine demonstration of love of Jesus that expresses itself in our daily lives to help others. My simple thing that I would say to you in closing before John comes and leads us at the communion table is that you have one of two choices today. That you've heard the word of God. And God, Jesus, through his word, is calling us to step up and to live our life in a life of love the way Jesus did for us. We're to love others as he loved others. Or you're going to live in the world of indifference and you will only think about yourself and pity the poor fool who has to stand before the king when he says, you're a goat. Father, we simply ask today that you would fill us to the point of expressing your love to others the way that Jesus expressed it to us because we are called to be kingdom builders, not welfare givers. Help us to build your kingdom through the way that we love the unlovable, the way that we step into the lives of the hurting, the poor, the orphans and the widows, God. Help us to love people the way that they are and reach into their lives with the love of Jesus so their lives can be transformed and their their ways changed so that they follow you in wholeness, in goodness, in mercy, and in love. Teach us your ways, Jesus, we pray in your great name. Amen.